Hello, and welcome to the Scripts and Scribes podcast. I'm your host, Kevin Fukunaga. For more great interviews and resources on the craft and business of writing, be sure to check out our companion website, scriptsandscribes.com. We apologize for the background noise. We are actually here at a coffee shop today. we have on the show a TV writer-producer who has worked on a number of series, including NBC's The Night Shift, TNT's Perception, and The Client List on Lifetime. She is a 2010 NBC Writers on the Verge alum and started in the industry, interestingly enough, in working in visual effects on films such as Pirates of the Caribbean, National Treasure Book of Secrets, and Terminator Salvation. Along with her writing-producing partner, Tanya Bhattacharya, they recently wrapped on the new series Famous in Love from Pretty Little Liars showrunner Marlene King, premiering in April on Freeform, and she also teaches TV writing for Script Anatomy. Uh, I'm pleased to have on the podcast, Ali Lavigal. Hi, Ali. Hi, thank you so much for having me. Yeah, this no, thanks great. for coming on. Um, we're having coffee, and um, you're having oatmeal, I'm having a, a croissant. <laughs> and uh, we're here to talk TV, so. Um, we always start the podcast where we get to know you a little bit, where we find out how you got started in writing, although you worked for a long time. I mean, you had a I long did. credit I list did. on IMDb yeah. working in visual yeah. effects. I don't, I don't want to give away my age, but it was a very, very long time. Well, I mean, a lot of TV shows and stuff like that, yeah. so a lot of episodes. But yeah, um, yeah there was a, you had a lot of credits before you even started working as a writer. I did, yeah. This is definitely a second career for me, and um, I'm, you know, it, it, it took a while to make that transition happen. Right. But, um, it was something that I knew, I, you know, when I started in visual effects, I started right out of college. Uh, pretty much the first week after graduation, I started working at a post-production company in San Francisco, and I started as a PA and a receptionist and became an assistant editor, actually, pretty quickly, and then an assistant on um, The Flame, which is probably one of the most, at least it was back then, the most popular compositing, 2D compositing tool. So that all happened very quickly for me, and I I had come out of a, a communication degree, TV production major, and a theater minor where I had started taking playwriting right at the end of college and kind of fell in love with it, but I was so afraid of not being able to earn a living right away that I kind of went the practical route, and I felt like... You know what I what I was seeing at the post production company and, and getting into visual effects. It was creative and it was an elegant aspect of storytelling that I thought would be sort of very satisfying and you know pretty quickly finding success in it and you know making a good living. Then it becomes difficult to make a switch because you get used to being able to pay your bills. <laughs> right, right, and you get work consistently yeah, rather than having to struggle to get yeah. work. Was an assistant editor and assistant flame artist in the Bay Area for about four or five years working nights. Visual effects usually have, you know, day and night shifts. And I moved to LA in order to start working during the day, really. Right. Which happened right away. And um, that move to LA also saw the transition in visual effects from commercials and music videos, which is what I was mostly doing in the Bay Area, to starting to work on feature films. Um, which which oddly enough as a visual effects compositor and I, I don't mean to insult people who do it because there are people who do it who are wildly creative and passionate and dedicated and, but for the level of compositing that I was doing which was not like the highest level 
it's a lot less creative because, you know, like I worked on two of the Pirates movies and probably spent six months on each compositing water plates, you know, ocean plates and, boat, you know, boat on practical boats which were shot on green screen. And that just became such a drag. <laughs> but, I, but, I, but it was good because I feel like that... Um, really gave me the nudge that I needed to pursue what I then realized was my dream, which was to really get at the core of storytelling, and that you know that was writing for me. So now, did you discover uh, writing storytelling was your passion through this process, or had you known before, but this was just sort of your way in? You know, I always. You know, I started college actually as an English major and then switched okay. in the first year because I, again, I was be like, oh, this is great, but how am I going to make a living? Money, right, right. And then when I did the theater minor, the very last quarter in school, I took a playwriting class and I feel like the light bulb really went off for me in that in that class. We, we wrote one act and I felt high after, you know, I felt like this is the thing that I love to do more than anything, but it was, you know, a few weeks before graduation and I needed to, to pay the rent, so right. I kind of just put it on the back burner and then after several years of, of working in visual effects, I realized, you know what, I'm, I was, you know, early 30s, I wasn't married, didn't have kids, I felt like I had the opportunity to really give it a try and take that risk and you know I kept compositing I actually went back to working nights and started writing during the day I, I went to a bunch of classes that's actually where I met Tanya um, so I kind of you know I was like I thought I was being careful about it and I guess part of me maybe hoped that you know I would hate it and continue to just live that practical life but I loved it of course and it, you know nothing was going to stop me from pursuing it no matter how hard it was and it was it was very hard and it took a long time it, I think it took seven years between my decision to pursue it full-time as a career and the first paying writing job so seven years I mean I guess it happens faster for some people and, and you know and it takes longer for yeah. others but that that's what it was for me yeah and we always try to mention that as well. The, yeah. the overnight success stories yeah, are rare. few and far Very, between. Yeah. You know, you're a seven-year yeah. overnight success. Yeah. Other people are ten-year overnight success. Yeah. You know, five-year overnight success. It doesn't happen very quickly. Yeah. So, if, but if you're passionate about it and if you love it, stick with it. That's yeah. the thing. I think if you can't stop, you know, yeah. then you just have to hang in there. If you think that right. you could be happy doing something else for a living, then you know, they're probably almost almost anything else is probably going to be a more stable career right uh, as we all know. unless you want to be an nba player or <laughs> yeah, pro football player that's other true. than that yeah that's true um that's true now did you find that working in film in post-production that there were lessons especially you worked in post and editing yeah um did you find that there were lessons that you took from that and brought with you into your TV work, work? Yeah, you know, there really are, and it, it's sort of becoming more clear to me now that Tanya and I are, are, you know, we're working in TV, and luckily for us, quite early on in that process, we, you know, when we were staff writers on our first show, and our second show, we got to produce our own episodes, and that always, you know, includes obviously being on set, and then overseeing your episode through post. Um, and editing is definitely the final rewrite um, in, in a really significant way so but prior 
inspired a post when you're on set I feel like it's a very natural um, it's very easy for me to understand how a scene is going to be cut together when I'm watching something shot which isn't necessarily the case for all writers who just come from say you know a purely words on a page background um, so I do have that. I actually worked on set as a visual effects supervisor a little bit before I switched over. So I, that, I think that also gave me some experience that is helpful, for sure. And I think being able, obviously, to visualize, I mean, we're, it's a very visual medium TV and film, obviously, so having that having that experience of, you know, seeing how things cut together and actually cutting things together yourself right. helps. It really helps when you're writing and when you're figuring out what scenes, you know, you can cut, how to transition, that kind of thing. Now, did your uh, visual effects background, or did that help or hinder you at all during the process of you becoming uh, a TV writer, meaning like showrunner meeting with a visual effects heavy show, did that ever come up right. at know, all? I, I have to say it hasn't really. I, when, I, when we first started going out on meetings, right. I sort of thought, well, maybe this is an asset, so I'll mention it. And people usually just go, oh, cool, and they nod and then they move on. Like, they don't, right. <laughs> they don't really, <laughs> I mean, I, you know, especially at the lower levels, writing on staff, you're not expected to have any kind of producing experience right. or post experience or anything like that. So I, I, I don't know. I, I do remember the one place we talked about it a little bit. We had a show a meeting on Teen Wolf, the NBC, uh, MTV show. And they're obviously really visual effects heavy. And I feel like that was kind of one of the only showrunners who asked a lot of questions and right, right. was at all interested. Right, right. Yeah. Um, we have a lot of writers who do not live in Los Angeles who listen to the podcast. And for feature, it's never, it's always easier to be here to take meetings because and there's lots and lots of meetings before you actually get paid for anything. Right. Isn't um, that yeah. yeah. Um, but especially for, for television writers, it's, you never want to say impossible to make it not living here, but it's much, much, much more difficult to make it as a TV writer out of Los Angeles than it is for a TV writer, I mean a feature writer, living out of Los Angeles. Yeah. Um, but I, you actually have made that move from San Francisco here. You had a job already, yeah. but I wanted to talk to you maybe a little bit about the move itself, yeah. you know, the practicalities of that, right. and uh, what sort of benefits you see as a writer, like what, why is it important for a TV writer to, you know, coming from your mouth, to those writers out there who don't live in Los Angeles who may want to write for television, why is it so important for them to live in Los Angeles? Well, it's interesting, you know, a lot of people don't know that when you're a TV writer, the job actually is waking up every morning and showing up at an office right. here in LA, usually. Some shows write in New York or whatever, but most write here in LA, even though they're shot all over the place. Right. So, you, sh you know, the whole entire writing staff gets together every day, all day, and sits in a room together, so you obviously have to be here. Right. But before that, before that happens, there's such a long process of writing sample scripts and trying to get people to read them and try and get representation, and then once you have representation, there are all of these other steps between going on general meetings, getting to know network executives and studio executives, right. finally getting that showrunner meeting, you know, all that stuff 
once I, I moved from the Bay Area to LA, it, that, that's when the seven year started. Like that's when I decided. So it was seven years of being in LA, taking classes, getting to know people, writing scripts, writing more scripts, partnering up with Tanya, getting into a program. I mean, the, the, the work that goes into even getting to the point where you're eligible to be submitted to be on staff somewhere is, is work that really, uh, being in LA benefits you because it is so much about getting to know the right people, getting people to read your stuff, getting feedback on that material, right. um, getting to know other writers, getting all of that is, I can't imagine trying to do it from another another city, I really can't. Right. It's, it's a very, it's a very people-oriented business, and all of the people are here. So right, right. Unless I would say, unless you're a very successful playwright, sure, for example, absolutely. working in New York, or you're a successful writer in some other capacity somewhere else, you're going to get noticed, and you're going to get uh, people asking you to come. Right. Then of course, you know, that happens, I guess, often. And Right. Yeah. <laughs> Kudos to those people because they do it on their terms, and I think that's great. But it's not—it's not as common, I think, as people just deciding that they want to try to write for television. I think the best thing that you can possibly do for yourself is to move to LA if you can. Right. Absolutely. Yeah. Um, and a lot of staff writers, a good majority probably of staff writers, started off as an assistant on a yes. show oh and either promoted through that show or through, you know, excuse me, somebody leading yes. that show, like a senior a supervising producer or, you know, somebody leading that show and taking them with them to a different show or the programs. The yes. fellowships, the programs. The yeah, education. people ask me all the time. You know, what, what, what are the best, best pathways into uh, staff, staff writing position? And I think you just hit it on the head. Being an assistant, either a writer's PA, a writer's assistant, a showrunner's assistant, or a script coordinator. Those are the four right. assistants on every show. Every show has them. If it's a successful show that's on for multiple seasons, there is a chance if you do good work and you. You know, are fantastically beneficial right. to and make your shorters like easier. They're going to at least read your work. Yes. Some, you know, so being promoted at some point is is a possibility and, and definitely something that I would recommend very highly. You know, not even even if you don't get a staff job on that show, if you work for a year or two for a showrunner and do great work for them, but they can't give you an episode or can't give you that staff writer position, they can help you when your reps are sending you out on showrunner jobs. If you're up for another, if you're up for a, for any kind of staff job, having any showrunner call and say, hey, this person's great, yeah. means the world. So if you have a showrunner who sort of becomes a fan because you've done great assistant work for them, that's that's gold. Right. That's right. gold. Yeah. Well, I mean, Liz Alper, yeah. who was been on the podcast, was David Shore's assistant. Oh my gosh. Yeah. yeah. Obviously, David Shore's huge. Yeah. Um, didn't get promoted to work on one of David's shows, but was able to obviously parlay that. Everyone yeah. he knew, and he, you know, he was obviously very good to her, and was able to parlay yeah. that into a staff job on uh, Chicago Fire. So, yeah, yeah, but again, had she not been David Shore's assistant, right. those opportunities, those connections, yeah. that network may not have been what it is. 
You know, and being an assistant is also a really, really smart choice. If you can, I know those jobs are hard to get, mm-hmm. but if you can try and if you can get one, it really. Um, if you're a writer's assistant, you're sitting in a writer's room all day, right. every day, and that experience is really invaluable because you understand how a writer's room works before you find yourself in one, expected to right. you know, pitch and all that stuff. So, writer's assistant, obviously, very coveted job, but a you know, great opportunity and very valuable. Showrunning, show, showrunner's assistants, I mean, also know the ins and outs of how a show is produced because they're involved in every aspect of what their boss is doing from production to post to casting to the writer's room to turning scripts in to notes calls to all of it so i think you know it's it's such a great education so not only all the allies that you're going to make but the education itself absolutely yeah it's amazing and that's a big part of it too yeah is that at least if you're promoted from within, they know you understand the process, yeah. which is a huge difference when coming from someone outside. Because just because you know how to write and are a good writer, right. doesn't it's a nec- tiny part of it. right? Absolutely, doesn't yeah. mean you necessarily know how to how a writer's room works, and you're a good collaborator and all these other things. Yeah. So, yeah. Um, and do you have any specific? Uh, I mean, granted, your move to LA was over you know, a number of years ago. Yeah, uh, a long time ago. <laughs> what are a few things that you may have picked up that are valuable, maybe for people who are considering that move? You know, writers who may be interested in making that move. What are some things that maybe advice you might give them? Yeah, I mean, you know, I would definitely say take classes if you can, sure. even if you feel like you already have all the education that you need. That you know that. Um, Getting to know other writers here it's huge. is huge. And Especially in TV. Yeah. Because you'll all be working with each other, you'll all be. You Absolutely. Know. Establishing that group of peers, mm-hmm. you always want to be getting feedback on your work and, you know, growing that community um, is really important. And I think not only for the feedback aspect of it, but to just hear about what opportunities are out there or who got repped where and who, what, what new young hungry manager is looking for a comedy writer or whatever right. that is. Um, this might be a good place to say that I teach a script anatomy, so I'm a little biased, but not really because I, I took classes when I first got here and I really feel like that was sort of a door opening for me. Right. Um, not only because of what I learned, but really because of the people I met. I mean, I ended up meeting my writing partner, so, sure. so that was huge. And you but. were actually a working writer. Uh, which is which is what I wanted to bring that up because um, <clears throat> we don't promote a lot of right. services, right. paid writing services, because we know a lot of them aren't worth their salt necessarily. Right. Just because somebody says, "I'm a writing consultant," "I'm a you know a paid reader, professional reader," "I read for some indie production company, so now pay me to read your script, right. give you my opinion." or I'm going to teach you how to be a better writer even though I've never been paid to write anything because I have an English degree from some college. The difference is, like, we've had on uh, a few services. I've had on Tanya and and Holly, who both uh, teach for Script Anatomy. Tanya actually is the founder. Right, absolutely. Tanya, I should say, is my writing partner, but she also 
separately and by herself started Script Anatomy. She, and you met her through? No, 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 okay. no. I, I met her previous. Oh, okay. Yeah, we, we were actually, I, I think I can say this, we, she was teaching at Writer's Boot Camp back okay. in 2005, and I, that's where I started taking classes when I moved to LA. Gotcha. So we were writing features there, we did the two-year program, she ended up moving to India, we became friends, we, we were friends for years before we started writing together, oh. and then when she came back from India, she started Script Anatomy and okay. has grown it into this really incredible thriving sure. business and she has I think nine instructors teaching classes and workshops for her now and the thing that's so great about Script Anatomy is that all of the teachers are working writers. Right. So For me as if we're going to sort of promote something, um, because we've talked about it, I've talked about it with Tonya, we, we talked yeah. about it earlier, that like anything in education, you pay to go to college, you pay to get vocational training, but do it in a smart way. You know, go, if you're going to go to an accredited university, not some online upstairs medical college, yeah, you know, right. from you know, that you find in the yellow pages, right? Yeah. Exactly. Um, and a lot of the thing is because anybody can call themselves, you know, a script consultant or whatever, with whatever qualifications they deem relevant. And people who don't live in Los Angeles who may not be familiar go, oh, that's great. They they seem to know what they're talking about. I'm going to give them my money. Um, the people that, that we sort of support, um, because there's so many out there, uh, are the ones, again, like, you know, I love Tanya, and Holly's been on the show, you're nice. awesome, and so, but you're all working writers, right. so you have a leg to stand on. You, for me, that's super important. Yeah. Um, the thing about it, too, is Tanya developed these tools that really give writers sort of an applicable process to use when they're developing their own pilots right. or writing a spec or whatever, but, you know, besides that, the results, I think, at Script Anatomy speak for themselves. We have six right. writers this year in the fellowship programs, oh, wow. and we have writers staffed on shows like American Crime and Handmaid's Tale and The Hundred and uh, Being Mary Jane, and, and the list goes on. So it's really um, the success is really sort of in the in the in those stats, I guess. It's really exciting. I love teaching work. I really love it. Now, just talking about. You know, we'll, we'll dive into a little quick sales pitch here. What is it, you know, and, and, and again, this is not a paid thing. Yeah. We've had Tanya on before, we've had Holly on. Um, what what will, can students learn from Script Anatomy? Um, you know, what kind of, what do you guys teach? Yeah, And it's TV writing, but specifically about TV writing, what is it that you guys emphasize? We have, we have so there's a basic class called the Televisionary Writers Workshop that Tanya's designed. It's a six-week class, and it takes you from an idea all the way up to a really fully developed outline. Um, it can be for a spec or for a pilot. I will say, in my experience, most of the students are writing pilots, although there are separate spec classes, which a lot of people jump into before the fellowship season, so they can get their specs into great shape. But for either, you know, especially for pilots, it takes you through the idea of a conceit. Um, we really push uh, that, you know, because none of us, let's face it, are Jason Tatum's or Shonda Rhimes yet. We really have to have high concept ideas that stand out just with, you know, with a log line. You have to be able to attract a reader right. to want to look at your work. So that idea of what makes your project unique, we go into that. We talk about the different types of conceits. But then we get into a lot of character work, a lot of character development. Um, so your character is going to have a 
strong flaw, redeemable traits, and gold, a really strong backstory, poor wound, all this stuff that we do up front on a character level. And then we get really into structure as well. We teach structure in a really sort of an understandable way, but a way that's pretty diligent so that once you start to, and each, each step of the way there are specifically designed tools that, that Tanya came up with to help you sort of map out, you know, all the core structural beads for all of your different storylines. So once you get to outline, so much of that work is done up front and you're getting feedback from an instructor and from your peers as well each week that by the time you get to outline and then especially by the time you get to draft, you know, so much of that heavy lifting is done that your work ends up being, you know, the writers come out with stronger first drafts, I think, of script anatomy classes than if you're, maybe in other classes are doing it on your own because all those boxes are, are sort of checked. Um, and, yeah. Now, I know you guys have classes here. Do you guys do any online stuff? Or is it all, you have to be here? In we do. In fact, I'm teaching an online class oh, right okay. now. And I have a writer from, a student from London, somebody from okay. Antwerp, somebody from Paris. Antwerp, really? Yeah. Wow. Vienna, New York, Chicago. It's, okay. it's amazing. Um, so Tanya's really trying to grow that aspect of the business as well. So if anybody's listening from outside of LA, that's an option. I, I think she's going to run several on, online classes a year. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Okay. Um, and we have we'll have the links on the site. Uh, I think we already have it. If you look up Tanya Bhattacharya, we'll have yeah, it on your stuff. Yeah, yeah, it's scriptanatomy.com, so yeah. it's pretty easy. Um, and uh, you had mentioned actually a number of your uh, students have gone on to this year six to yes. fellowships yes. and, and the, the writing programs. Which yes. Are huge. We always emphasize that writers who are trying to break in yeah. apply to all of these things. Apply as many as you can. I They're hugely yeah. valuable. Um, but what are having been through one of the fellowships yeah. and having you know taught a number of students who have gotten in this year? What are some things that that writers listening? can expect and do you have any sort of tips, advice, what's the secret, how can they get in? <laughs> Well, Besides having a great spec. So Tanya and I did NBC Writers on the Verge. Right. And I've also been a reader for them. So say they get 2,000 submissions, I might read 100 scripts and score oh, and write coverage or whatever. Right, so right, right. I do have a little bit of a perspective in terms of the fact that I will say absolutely apply for sure. It's, you know, they're all really great programs. Some staff have higher staffing rates than others, but I think all of them are well worth it. Um, it's NBC, it's ABC Disney, it's Fox, it's CBS Writers and Mentoring Program, mm -hmm. um, HBO has a new one, HBO Access, anyway. I will say it's extremely competitive and don't be discouraged if you don't get in. Keep trying. A lot of times they will track your results from year to year. And I, I don't know if that's a secret or not. <laughs> if I'm supposed oh, I to say that. But, but if you can have sort of a strong submission a couple of years running, they do keep track of that. Uh -oh. At least a you know, writing a strong spec script is going to be most of it, but then most of them also ask for bios and essays. Um, that's a big part of it, too. And then I know at NBC they do a phone interview and an in-person interview where you go in and meet with Karen, who runs the program, and then usually one or more other executives. So it's about your spec script first, then it's about your personal story, maybe what makes your point of view, your voice unique. 
then it's about your personal presentation, how you can go sit in a room with somebody and talk about television right, and storytelling right. and why you, you know, why you need to have your voice included in that landscape. Um, but writing a strong spec script is, it's, it's definitely, you know, it's a skill because you have to write something that mimics the show, which is a skill in and of itself, but you also have to write something that really stands out. So it's finding that concept, I think, that can really illustrate that you know how to um, to nail the pieces and the character behaviors and sort of utilize those dynamics and relationships and conflicts that exist on the show, but your spec has an episode idea that makes whoever's reading it go, oh my god. Right, right. <laughs> you know, I... I can use an example, actually. I, it's an old example. This is, again, going to probably age me, but I, when I first started writing specs, I actually wrote a spec of private practice. Okay. I was a big Shonda fan, and I thought, you know, that's, that's a show that sort of I know really well. I was watching at the time. And my second spec, I wrote a Grey's Anatomy. Okay. Um, but in between those two scripts, I had a general meeting with an executive at ABC who had read the private practice, and I was lucky to go in and get a general, and it sort of turned out to be more of an advice meeting than anything else. It was my first meeting ever. Uh, this was just actually before Tanya and I started working together, and she liked the private practice, but it was, you know, not an idea. But the concept for the spec wasn't standout, but the story was good, and the voices were good, and the character, the writing was good enough for the meeting, but she, she actually gave me the example of, if you were going to go sit down and write a Grey's Anatomy, and this was at, uh, at the time, it was a couple of years after Dr. Burke, played by Isaiah Washington, had yeah. left the show, right? And he was a really significant character in the first few seasons. She said, you should write Grey's Anatomy, for example, where Burke comes back for an episode. And that's, a, that's a, an example of an idea where you could still show that you know how to write the characters on that show, how to write the storylines for that show, how to write the medical for that show, how to get the voices, but everybody would want to know why Burke's back. And so, right, right. So I thought that was a really good example of pushing hard on a concept um, that would be sort of unique and different. Not everybody's going to write that. Most people are going to just find a great medical case or right. that kind of thing. So I think that the, those are really the two, you know, whew, I'm almost knocked over my own Conceptually, really making yourself push for the best idea possible, and then execution-wise, really being able to make your script sound like a produced episode of the show. Right. So, no, no, no small feat. Now, do you have any um, thoughts on what? Or what show to spec? Like, there's you know thoughts of don't do anything that's been out for too long, but don't do anything that's too new. Don't do anything that's too popular, but you can't do anything that's too obscure because no one will know what it is. And what are your thoughts on that whole like? what show that somebody wants to spec? Yeah, it's a great question. I think first and foremost, you should write a show, and uh, this is subjective obviously, but you should write a show that's really well written because you don't want to nail sort of a generically, mediocrely written show. Right. It's not going to show off your skills. Right. 
Right, to show that you're really passionate about or know really well. Yes. But then you should try for something that I think is in like season two or three, if possible. The first season show is always a little bit riskier. Once a show goes off the air, your spec is sort of no longer viable. Right. And so getting a season two is always a good sign that it's going to be on for a while. And it's not too old that people think, oh God, I don't want to read another, you know, whatever. Because right. we've read, you know, we've read... Your 500th NCIS yeah. Um, you know, I think this year. God, I'm trying to think. You know, I think the affair is still really good for drama writers. I think Westworld. I think This Is Us would be a great, a great show to spec. Um, I would have said maybe The Americans the last couple of years. Um, Tanya and I wrote a Mad Men in NBC in the NBC program, and that was like I think in its third or fourth season at the time. You know, I'm trying to think of comedies. Um, Master of None great show. Uh, is a great show. I think Kimmy Schmidt's probably still good, although it's been around for a little while. Yeah, I think it's what, three seasons. But I also think that you should pick a show, you should spec a show that resembles what you would like to staff on, because this is going to be the, you know part of your portfolio. Uh, if, obviously, if you're a comedy writer, writing a network comedy is very different than writing a cable comedy, different tones and, and structures and all that stuff. So, probably the answer that you get from most people. I don't know that I have anything. Now, I had a question that I was curious about. Since you had mentioned that you had been a reader, you had yeah. read scripts for yeah. uh, Writers on the Verge in one of the fellowships, or programs, it's not a fellowship. Quite a bit, I don't know. Um, my question was, what do you get assigned scripts, or do you like select them from whatever's available? Meaning, like, if you had never seen an episode of a specific show, would you be assigned that show, and how do you determine? So generally, at least the way they do it at NBC, and right. I apologize if I'm giving away their, their trade secrets, but I think it's okay to say this, which is they ask all of their readers up front what shows okay, you're good. familiar with, good. and you give them a list, and then they assign scripts out of their submissions based on what you're familiar with, and I think it's really a good idea to only check mark the shows that you really know well, because that is so much of what you're assessing, right. is whether or not the spec is, you know resembles a show. Sure. Yeah, so, so yeah. And you may not be familiar since you don't distribute the script, but I'm, I wonder what if somebody writes an episode of a show that like very few people, if anybody has said, oh, I watched this show, so something super obscure, I don't know what that might be yeah. offhand. Yeah. Uh, I wonder what something would Something do. maybe from the BBC or something like yeah. that. Yeah. You know, they will, I think that that's a really good point because it's, it shows why it's risky to write a show like that. Right. If you write a show that not very many people are familiar with, chances are it'll be harder to find a reader who's right. familiar with it and then you know, that's probably going to hurt you. Right. Um, but they'll probably just assign, I'm not really sure, but yeah. they'll probably just assign it to somebody. And maybe that person will watch an episode before they read your spec just so that they can have some level of familiarity. Right. Yeah. Yeah. And I, I know that some of them, I think like, you know, Warner, you know, the Warner Brothers one, they give you a list that yes. you can choose from. You yes. can't write whatever Which you want. Which I think is probably a good, uh, you know, right. a good idea. Right. <laughs> yeah. Um, uh, now, Tanya actually had mentioned something to me to talk to you about that I thought would be interesting. Um, I guess you uh, you guys are rep by ICM. 
but she had mentioned that you guys recently went out on a hunt for a new manager. Yes, we did. So I, I actually would find that sort of interesting because the, you're obviously in a different position. You have agents, you're you know professional, working professionals, you have credits to your name, so you're not starting from you know, step right. one, you're like, you know, obviously just sort of wading through the waters, determining what it is you're looking for a better fit. Right. Um, without causing any waves, um, what, and not naming any names in particular, but what, at what point did you decide we need to make a switch? And was it something in particular that sort of, not necessitated, but you know, made you guys, you know, the, the relationship wasn't as good as it should be, or your tastes differed, or what is it that made you say, okay, let's, let's you know, make a switch? Yeah. Was it your agent that motivated it? Was it... You know, we, we had had a manager when we first came out of Writers on the Flash, mm -hmm. and we were very first staffed, and we stayed with her for a couple of years, and then we left her, and we were without a manager for a couple of years. Oh, okay. So, um, I can't remember exactly when it was, but... She was great, and I think the relationship was perfect for the time that that relationship existed. And then we felt like we did, you know, it's not to be too, you know, it's 10%, it's an extra 10%. Yeah, and, and what we really wanted to be doing was starting on the road to development, and that wasn't happening. Gotcha. We kind of felt like. So we went, we went for a few years without, and we have great agents at ICM, and that was working well for us. We were stopped a couple more times. Um, and then we, we started to we started to have some development opportunities, but we really felt like we felt like we were ready to develop at a level that wasn't quite happening yet, and we also felt like we were we were um, racking up a series of credits of shows that we'd written on that weren't the type of material that we wanted to be writing. We've been on the client list, Perception, Fairly Legal, The Night Shift, and now Famous in Love, which you know are all great, and they've been great jobs. But the type of right, you know, the type of people we are, the, the shows we watch, what we love, and, and frankly, our strengths are are something different. And so we spent the last 18 months writing new material. We wrote a short story. We wrote two new pilots. We wrote two new features, actually. Um, that are all more adult, darker, more sophisticated, more character-driven type dramas that really reflect where we want to, the direction in which we want to turn our career. Sure. So that was what we did on our end, and we then felt like, because once you start accumulating credits of a certain type of show, it's very hard. Somebody can read a piece from your portfolio and say, oh yeah, they can write this, but geez, they have all these credits that don't match. Right. So we felt like we needed to bring an extra person in and add to our team of, you know, hopefully heavyweights that are going to help us, like, turn the super tanker right. in a new direction. Right. And so we we talked to our agents about it, and, and they were supportive. Um, so they actually assembled a list, a small handful of managers they wanted us to meet with, and we did that just uh, at the end of December. And then we, you know, we really did a lot of due diligence. It was a hard choice. We met with five fantastic representatives. Mm -hmm. It was a really hard choice. Um, and then, you know, one of them just sort of stood out to us as 
somebody who really understood who we were and, and what we wanted to do as writers and, and who felt like he could help us make that happen. I, it was a tough choice. We ended up talking to a lot of clients of these particular people that we okay. met with and asking a lot of questions. I, ha I have to say, we, we, did, <laughs> we, did an, <laughs> we did a lot of research. We like stalked people on Facebook, uh, clients of managers we had met with to see if they would talk to us. And, right. and um, I, you know, it's only been a few weeks now that we've been with, I guess I can say, our, our new manager is Mikhail um, Nayfield at Heroes and Villains. Yeah, yeah. And we're really excited. You know, we really hope that, I think that it's going to be a good, a good marriage. So, yeah, that's the story. Yeah, yeah, no, we love those Heroes and Villains. Yeah, we yeah. got a couple of them oh on the podcast. God. Yeah. Oh, great. <coughs> yeah. Yeah. Um, so the hunt for good representation, I should say, does not end when you become a working writer. No, I mean, we, we actually also switched agencies early on. <laughs> okay. We hope to never do that again, but right. but it did happen. So it doesn't end when you, once you are repped, it doesn't necessarily end. I'm sure there are stories of people who've worked for 30 years with the same reps, and that's great too. But right. for us, it just, it worked out this way. Right. Now, what are some of the things that Maybe the aspiring writers, or we do have a number of, you know, staff writers and story editors who do this little podcast yeah, yeah. as well. Um, what are some of the things that they should look for, or what did you guys look for other than, you know, obviously similar tastes and, and goals for you guys in your career, um, but in terms of, like, making your selection? Like, what did you talk to uh, other clients of yeah, these reps? Yeah, that's a great question. Yeah. yeah. Well, for us, you know, we, uh, we took our agent's opinion very seriously, and when it came down, we met with five, and it, for us, just who we connected with and who we vibed with most in those meetings, and sort of what they had to offer us in terms of the size of their company, and by that I mean, like, some of the bigger companies that also represent directors and talent sure. can really be beneficial when you get into packaging. Mm -hmm. and that's a direction that we are going. In. Which so nowadays is huge for huge. TV pilots. Yeah, yeah. Having an established director, having yeah. a showrunner, possibly if you've absolutely. never been a showrunner attached, yeah, that can be ready to go. So we, you know, because we have had success staffing for you know five subsequent seasons, it's really kind of the development road that we're we're looking to to make sure that we do now. Um, we asked a lot of these managers, clients, what their experience has been in terms of development, selling pilots, packaging, that kind of thing. And so I would say that's kind of where we dug around the most. Um, and some people had really positive things to say about the big companies, and some people had not as positive things to say, and by that I mean it, it was more about unless you are already at, you know, or you're already an upper level writer or a showrunner, you may not be what that company is focused on in terms of your best interest versus their best interest, right. because if they represent the big stars and the big directors too, and the big showrunners, those people are bringing in more money for them. Right. It's going to be based on what's best for those clients versus us at a mid-level, you know, we, we were producers on our last job, so we're right. we're not low-level, we're not upper-level, right. we're right in the middle, and we, right. it's, it's really, <laughs> you're sort of assigned that value. Right. Um, sorry, 
yeah, no. lost track of what your question was. No, it was just what did you, what kind of questions did you ask? What were you looking, yeah. you know, from other clients of these right. reps, you know, in terms of to help make your decision? Right. It was definitely about that, but about that development process and selling pilots and <laughs> staffing as well. Although we feel like. Uh, you know, obviously our agents know what they're doing, but we also had the feature side of it to consider too, because we do have these two new features. We have one with the producer, we have a feature agent at ICM, and, and, and Mikhail has a lot of feature experience and, and was excited about excited about our our work. I mean, he he really felt like he could help us with you know one. It, it was kind of I guess it was a creative decision as well as a business decision obviously as an ownership sure, yeah. Um, yeah I'm trying to think of what else we asked these people it was mostly their personal experience about you know how often do you talk to your manager right. what kind of things do they help you with right. and what was your experience like when you went out and pitched what was your experience like when they tried to partner you up with the showrunner right. you know that kind of thing right. well since we're on the topic of representation um, for lower level writer yeah it may not change at your level but it, it, it might I'm actually um, curious about that how often do you speak to your agents and managers and what is expected of you you know the old a new script every six months uh, you know yeah it's sort of that general yeah, thing but I mean question. every everyone's different yeah. every writer's different every rep is yeah. different so how often do you speak to your reps and how often do you bring them new material? Because they can't really do their job unless you give them new they material. They absolutely can't do anything right. unless you bring them new material. And that's, you know, it's obviously a lot harder when you're working on a show and you're working 50, oh, sure. 60, 70 hours a week and you're writing episodes. It's very hard to then go home at night and try to turn your creative brain on and right. write a new pilot. And at lower levels, you can't develop anyway. Yeah, that's true. Yeah. But even just to be writing your own samples. Oh, sure. Yeah. yeah, yeah. Um, so I would say the amount that we talk to our reps definitely varies depending on what we have going on. If there's something going on, you know, we met with somebody yesterday for the development side, we, we would like to be talking to them, you know, several times a day when right, exciting right. news, <laughs> um, but when there's, you know, when you're staffed, when you're staffed on a show and everything's going fine, you may not talk to them for a couple of weeks, mm-hmm. but when you're you know, trying to get things going, when you're turning in new scripts, when you're getting feedback, when you have meetings, that kind of thing, we try to call our reps after every meeting that we have, mm-hmm. oftentimes we don't get through, I think that's probably pretty normal, although, right. you know, on a good day they call us back by that night, on a not great day they call us back three days later, you know, that can, that just is what it is, I guess, I'm not sure what to say about that, I right. think that's... <laughs> can be frustrating, right. I'll say. It, it definitely right. can, but um, we, we, let's see, how often, you know, we, we try to write new material constantly when we're not on a show. When we are on a show, it's, like I said, it's much harder. We have done it and we've tried. It's a slower process and it's sort of sometimes the results aren't as good just because we're exhausted. But right. we do try and it really is true, you know, especially with us lately in the last two years when we realized we wanted to go sort of in a different direction, we realized that was on us. We had to write the, the material to prove that we could go in that direction. So we did and we have and I would say... Um, trying to think it's, there's not really sort of a consistent amount of time like we, we give them something every six months it doesn't really work like that we try to really jam on things 
when we come off a show. We wrote a pilot when we came off of, I guess it was Fairly Legal, which was our first staff job, that ended up being our sample for a couple of years because we we were either on shows, we were staffed, or we wrote a couple of pieces that mm -hmm. they sort of selected the idea for us and they were commercial ideas, but they weren't really in our wheelhouse and they didn't end up working. So we had these samples, but they weren't really being used. Right. Um, and then, and then this, these two new pilots that we have written recently, one was actually a pitch that we took out. Um, we decided to write anyway, so that was a little bit quicker because we had done all this work up front right. by coming up with the pitch for it. And then we also happened to write a new a new pilot around the same time. So we kind of gave them two new things within a four or five month window. Um, I don't know. I don't, I don't think there's anything that... I don't think there's any increment of time that you have to hold yourself to. I just think you have to realize that it really is on you. If you don't like what's happening, right. write something new. Right. And you had mentioned you had written a couple features. You guys yes. had a couple features recently. Yeah. <coughs> Excuse me. Um, feature writers who sort of make that jump to television, especially if they're successful English screenwriters, find that transition I don't want to say fairly easy, but it's much easier. They're welcomed with open arms, exactly. to be honest. <laughs> then going in sort of that other direction. Yeah. If you're a successful sure. television writer, yeah. I mean, unless you're Aaron Sorkin, it's very difficult to sort of make that transition. Um, how do you sort of divide your energies being a working television writer, but also sort of putting your toes into a feature pool? Because they, you know, for, they're, they're different. They're very different both in terms of the way they operate, but also the people involved, right, yeah. um, the networks versus the studios, yeah, and you exactly, know, exactly. all those relationships that you've yeah. built you know, at the networks versus you know, the studio. Well, I'll say that our, agent, our TV agents at ICM have been very supportive, and they, when we signed with them, they immediately put us together with one of their feature agents, who also has been very supportive. And she um, had us come in pretty early on and pitch her a couple of different ideas, and she told us what she thought we should write. We outlined that feature pretty quickly, but then sat on it for a while because we were working on shows, and we would pull it back out um, and work on it right. you know, when we had downtime. But it ended up being a longer process because we were working. Sure. Then we wrote the draft of it. Um, she read it and she really liked it. It was kind of, you know, it was fun because she hadn't seen, heard from us in a year because we had been on the show. We just sent her a script right, that right, she right. happened to love, which was very exciting um, for probably her and us. Anyway, <laughs> she, so she, so I think, you know, making the transition from TV to feature writing really is going to come down to your material. Again, if you can write something to get yourself noticed, that's really the only way to do it. But having, obviously, the support of representation is a huge part of it. That feature ended up getting us a bunch of general meetings on the feature side, which we had never had before. So we ended up going to 20 or 30 companies and getting to sit down with them. And then the next feature we wrote, this is all a credit to Tanya. She basically, it came pouring out of her in terms of what the structure was for that feature in like a day. Oh, wow. <laughs> Um, so that was a very quick process, and we, we were able to give Kathleen, our feature agent, a draft of that script, like, I don't know, in a couple of weeks. Right. So, um, so in terms of how we divide up our energy, I think at this point we're really dedicated to making the feature career happen, and, and now having Mikhail on board as well, I feel like we're just not going to let it go. We're going to keep working in that space until, you know, until we can 
until we can actually be paid to be working in right. both in both places. I think it's you know with especially working in cable where the orders are shorter and you have 10 episode seasons or 15 episode seasons, you're not going to be working all year probably. So there is time. There really is time to do both. Mm-hmm. And it's, you know, it's not, it's definitely not impossible. Right. Yeah. Right. Yeah. How much material should a newer writer have before a seek representation? I've heard everything from what all you need is one amazing piece to you should have at least the, you know, a pilot and a feature, if not one or two of each? I've heard two specs and two pilots. I would say maybe one spec and two pilots. I think having a spec is really these days only good for getting into the fellowships. I don't think there are very many showrunners that will read a spec anymore. Um, but also specs, on the other hand, are such a good practice because once you get the Absolutely. job, that is the job, basically, is to spec that right. show in a very short amount of time. Right. So, write specs if you you know if you feel like you want to prepare for being on staff. Right. But having two great pilots, I would say, having just one is going to be a little bit of a scarier proposition because even if it's the most amazing thing they've ever read, right. they're going to say, what else do you have? Right. You don't want your first spec to be an episode of a show you're hired to write for. That's also yeah. very true. Yeah. Also uh, very true, but if you get you get the opportunity to staff on the show oh, that you sure. expect, then you're the happiest person on earth because that hardly ever happens. Right? No, no, no. Yeah, no. I just mean you don't want yeah, your yeah. first spec ever. Right. Not right, a bad right, show, but of any right, show, right. you know, where you're copying someone else's voice right, to be on a show exactly. that you're hired to write. I feel like that's you know yeah. my little naive viewpoint right. way, way, way back in the day. That's why I started with private practice and worked up to Grey's Anatomy right. because at that time, Grey's was my favorite show and I didn't want to start there because I knew I had to learn oh. some stuff before I... Anyway. Because we get that a lot. I get a lot of emails of people um, wondering how they can get their, you know, insert show here spec to the, you know, those not producers, those show. Yeah. They're not going to read your not stuff. Gonna if you want to work yeah. on um, the blacklist or blacklist, don't write a blacklist spec because they will never ever read it, right? A thousand percent true. Right, yeah. you know. Maybe they'll read your pilot if they like it. Maybe they'll request a spec of something. And if you've written a blind spot, right. similar tone, similar. Right. Ne- okay, but maybe. You know what, but yeah. I would have to say, like, forget that idea entirely because yeah. even, you know, Tanya and I, we've been on five shows. If we wrote a spec of The Americans because we wanted to go work on that show, or if we wrote a spec of some other spy show, right. they just don't read specs. No. They just don't. Um, it's very frustrating. We came out of Bridges on the Verge with a Mad Men spec that we thought we were really proud of that script right. and hardly anybody has ever read it. It's like oddly enough one of our future generals last year requested to read it because he was a, such a fan of the show and we were sort of talking about it off the cuff in the meeting and that's like one of the only executives I think in town who's ever read that spec. And it's, right. It's, it's pretty good. Yeah. <laughs> I've only heard of, I don't know, one or two showrunners in the past couple years who said they would even consider looking at yeah. a spec. Yeah. They all want Me pilots. Too. Yeah. Me too. Every once in a while they're like, if I really loved your spec and all I mean your pilot, your pilot and all I you had it, yeah. was another spec, yeah. maybe yeah, that's, that's what true. I would but very rarely. That's that true. should be your, you know, third or fourth option. Yeah. Uh, ideally. Yeah. You know, the short story thing was pretty interesting. Our agent was the one who suggested that we oh. write a short story. Yeah, yeah, yeah. If you I, need to sort of do something a little bit more quickly in your you know, you want to tackle writing prose. I would say it has helped us. I, you know, it's helped us mostly because it's it's a really it's a really unique character. Um, it's a 
It's a circus freak from 1875 with hypertrichosis, where she has hair. She was born with hair all okay. over her body. So it's obviously like a visually sort of you know, yeah. makes an impression. But a lot of people have read it, and it will get us a meeting. But it, but the next thing they say, especially if it's a showrunner meeting, is where's the pilot to follow right. it up? So. So that's actually the first introduction of your writing sometimes. I've never heard of anyone using a short story. Yeah, yeah. That's great. And our agent actually suggested it because he has had success with some of his other clients actually getting staffed off of just a short story. Oh, wow. We haven't had that experience, but he swears that he has. So So that's another another option for writers who want to add to their portfolio. You know, they say sometimes a one-act play or... Yeah. The only... I mean, I've heard of people getting rep... Or, I mean, getting staffed based on a play. Um, that happens quite frequently, yeah, I yeah, think. Yeah. Uh, maybe not frequently, but it happens. Yeah. Um, but I've never heard of anyone getting ripped off of a short story, except, I mean, I guess, like, tech advisors who, you know, like if you're writing for a cop show, you have an ex-cop, and maybe yeah. all they have is a... Right. But interesting. I didn't, yeah. I've never heard of short stories. Yeah, I, you know... Especially with, people, you know, you and Tanya, with your resumes and your the amount of material you have going with a short story is kind of bold. Right, yeah. I think, you know, it was certainly fun to write and yeah. if you just want to show character and emotion and worlds. And it stands out because I can't imagine there's a ton of those floating around. And the other thing too is, you know, when scripts are piled high on somebody's oh, yeah. desk and they're 60 pages each, if you can give right. them a 15 page short story that, that really sort of makes an impression, right. at least you'll get, you know, a meeting or a request for more material sure. or something. Oh, no, that's great. Yeah, it's, yeah. A, it's, a, it's See, happening. Even I learned new stuff. <laughs> I had never heard of that. That's great. Um, we have a few listener questions I wanted to throw yeah, your way. absolutely. Um, the first one, with the prevalence of streaming content and premium cable shows, i.e. having no commercials, how important is it to follow a traditional act structure? Is it acceptable to write a pilot in a feature style without act breaks? It's a good question. I think that if you if you're starting out and wanting to break in, right. I would still suggest writing act breaks into your pilot. Um, even if you have something that's more directed towards cable in terms of the content, and you think that it would ultimately air on cable or streaming and it wouldn't have act breaks, I think the reason is when you're starting out, you have to be sort of open to taking any job opportunity right. that comes, and if you have a pilot that does have act breaks in it, it will be, um, you can use it for more, to be submitted to more shows, for a wider variety of shows. It's like a numbers game at that point, and I think having act breaks, because anybody who's show running a show with act breaks in it is going to need to see that you know how to write them. Right. Um, But a show with your pilot sample with act breaks in it is not going to deter a cable showrunner from hiring you. Right. Does that make sense? Absolutely. So I would say do it, even if you know that it's like the show would only ever air on Showtime. Right. (laughs) Yeah. Throw them in anyway. Um, the fewer barriers you have yeah. of people being able don't to read Don't give them a it. reason to say no. Right, absolutely. I, I, we've heard that a million times yeah. from everyone. Absolutely, <laughs> don't give them any reason to say no. Yeah. Um, how accurate does a script need to be in terms of historical or scientific accuracy when submitting to producers, executives, or agents? If the script is bought and made, will they hire a technical advisor to do a pass to clean up any imperfections? Well, boy. I mean, I guess if you're writing a medical show and... Yeah, if 
Okay, so I'll, I'll start by saying we were on the medical show, right. um, and we did have an ER doctor. Actually, had two in our writing room at right. the time. So, so once you, once but what if it's your own pilot? Right, but if it's your pilot, if it's your sample, I would say be as accurate as you possibly can be, mm-hmm. because again, you there's so many things you're trying to show with a sample, a writing sample, with a pilot. You're trying to show that you know you're a good storyteller, that you can do good scene work, that you can you're good character development, that you can write great dialogue, that you can grab attention in the first few pages, that you know how to write an act right, like all these things. But if you're writing a cop show or a legal show or a medical show, one of the things that is going to pull a reader out of your story is if it doesn't feel authentic to the world that you've created. So absolutely be as accurate as you can be Um, you know and it's hard obviously we've written a legal pilot and it's we're not lawyers and it's very hard to sort of sound like a lawyer when you're not one but do what you can to do that research do what you can to have maybe a friend of a friend who's a lawyer take a look at it even you know if you're writing something that's science-based or whatever it is I would say try to be as accurate as you can if you get one little fact wrong and you have a really great story and great characters, I don't think that's going to make somebody um, throw it in the trash. But I think if it's filled with those inaccuracies, it's going to not feel authentic to the world of your show, and that's going to hurt you. Right. Yeah. Yeah. It's hard, though. It's... it's Yeah, absolutely. (laughs) Sometimes doing the research takes as long as actually writing it. Yeah, research is a big thing. But yeah, and if you're writing a historical piece or a piece with a lot of science, medical, legal stuff... Right. yeah. That's you know what you're getting into before right. you actually do it, so exactly. you know you're gonna have to do the research. Exactly. Um, uh, oh, here's the next one. Uh, before you go off to write an episode of a show, do you have to turn in a really detailed synopsis or treatment? If so, how long are they usually, and how much time do you have to write it? Good question. Yes, the answer is yes. You write an outline, and anytime you go to write an episode of the show, at least I can speak to the five shows we've been on. Mm-hmm. You, you write an outline that goes to the studio and to the network. And they give feedback on an outline. Well, first it goes to the showrunner, obviously. You get their feedback, then it goes to the studio, then the network. So it is a very important part of the process. And usually you don't get very long to write that outline. Um, in the case of the five shows we've been on, I think I would say anywhere from 10 to 15 pages long. Some shows like every single detail of every single scene in there. Some shows would rather keep it a little bit more of a quicker read and just do broad strokes. Fairly Legal, I think, was 10 to 12 pages, as was Famous in Love, whereas Perception was like a good 14, 15 pages because it was a procedural and there was so much um, information and detail. Um, Yeah, I think. You know, on the client list, we got assigned an outline on a Friday afternoon, and it was due Monday morning, kind of a thing. Mm-hmm. Uh, that was pretty quick. I think usually maybe three, four, five days is a long time. Right. But usually it's like two to four days right. to write an outline. Now, for listeners, that this also takes into account though that 
the the writing staff has broken, broken down the, the season and broken yes. the story of that. Absolutely. You're not just like, okay, here's an episode. Yes. Give me a you know an yeah. outline in, yeah, in yeah. three days or whatever. That's true. That's Coming true. from nothing. Yeah. Sometimes yeah. the staff breaks story together in the room right. beat by beat, and sometimes like on the client list, we were mm-hmm. sort of given a story area. Then we were sent off to break the story ourselves. Oh, gotcha. Tommy and I. Right. Then you come back into the room. You hang your beats. Actually, we did this on perception as well. You hang your beats. Either just the showrunner and a co-EP, or the whole room mm-hmm. kind of gives you, you know, go over the beats together, rearrange things, add things, take things away. Then you go off to write an outline once the board beats are sort of approved. Right. Um, but yeah, so when you're sent off for those two or three days of writing frenzy to get that outline together, you have an approved story. Right. So yeah. you're not just kind of yeah. winging it as yes, you go. Exactly. Yeah. Um, yeah. I guess. Um, lastly, do you have any? advice for those aspiring screenwriters, TV writers out there? Yeah, God, I get asked this question a lot and I wish I had something genius to say that is different than what other people say, but I'm probably going to say the exact same thing. (laughs) You know, read as many scripts as you can, watch as much as you can, Um, don't stop writing, don't believe in writer's block. Right. Um, And I would say, you know, if this is the thing that you want to do and you know that you'll never be happy unless you are doing this for a living, don't give up because you're going to hear no a lot. A lot. A lot. I mean, maybe for years. And it's a tough business, but, you know, there are plenty of people who have success in it, and I think that you just shouldn't give up. Um, I think there's a fine line to walk between writing what you love and writing what you think other people are interested in. Right. Um, a very fine line, and it's hard to know how to give advice on that. I, I still have that struggle myself. But I the intersection say, of art and commerce, <laughs> yeah, right? exactly. I would say, you know, taking classes, and that's not just because I teach at Script Anatomy. I really do think that Classes are great because they give you deadlines. Classes are great because they keep pounding you on the fundamentals. They also teach you new things. They help you develop a community of writers and peers that can give you feedback and can be supportive, frankly, in a very tough business. It's, I think it's important to have that support. You know, you, you get into writer's groups because you want to elevate your material, but you also get into writer's groups because sometimes you need to sit around a table and say, oh my God, this is happening to me and I don't know what to do or I can't believe this is happening to me and they tell you not to give up and, right. you know, whatever it is. And it's, it's such a specific business that people who don't work in the business have a hard time understanding the some of the ways that the business works. So it's just nice to have that, that community. So right. get out and meet people, you know, don't just sit at home and write because then you won't have that support system right. and you won't have a life, you won't have things to write about if you don't also go out and live. Right. Um, but also keep writing don't give up and get used to, to hearing no and don't don't let it diminish your belief in yourself if this really is what you want to do right. I think people say no for so many different reasons it's so many it's much easier to say no than to say yes and you just can't let that tarnish how you know how you how you look at your future right and how much you want to yeah. work as a television or feature writer. Yeah. yeah, absolutely. You do have to believe in yourself, though, because it is... Well, if you don't know one will. Right. <laughs> yeah. yeah. And That's it's hard. Time. It's really hard. I mean, yeah. You know, I say all this stuff like, I'm no expert and I'm struggling with all of these things. So. Yeah. Well, I mean, I think anyone who has made it 
you know, has, is a working professional has faced these and often continues to face yeah. these. That's um, the other thing to know is it doesn't end once you yeah. break in. We kind of thought like, oh, well, once you, you know, once you get that first job, or right. once you get that second job, it's all easy straight at that point. It's not. It's you know, every it's stage is yeah, a different hard. step. Yeah. yeah. I, I wonder sometimes if you ask people at the very top, if, you know, if they still think it's hard. Yeah. Our agent has actually said in the past, like, you know, you guys want to be on, you know, cable show, whatever the thing is that we're right. wanting that day. He's going to say, and then you're going to want an overall deal, and then you're going to want, you know, he's yeah. basically telling us that we're always going to want. And then you're going to want an Emmy and an Oscar, and then <laughs> you're going to want, yeah. Yeah. So he's probably right. Yeah. I wonder what Aaron Sorkin wants. I wonder what Vince Gilligan. Vince Gilligan seems like he probably doesn't want a whole lot. He just kind of wants to tell stories, which is awesome. But yeah, I wonder what like Shonda Rhimes wants. It's a great when you have question. everything, yeah. what do you want? Yeah. I mean, what more could Shonda Rhimes? I think it's want? human nature, though, to always want. Oh, the next sure. Thing. I'm sure there's yeah. something. Yeah. yeah. Um, but I wonder what that is. Yeah. yeah that's a great question. And at yeah. what point do you just have to really learn to be happy with where you are? I mean, that's. A or you can look at it and go, you know what? This is awesome. Yeah. Just take a step back and appreciate, yeah. you know, what you've done and where you are. Yeah, I think that that you have to do both all along the way. Yeah. You have to appreciate. Yeah, that's a good point. You have to sort of be happy with where you are, and you have to strive yeah. to get to the next thing and right. to, to, you know, keep moving forward. That's a it's a good juggling act, and right. I think all of us probably have to. Well, I heard um, uh, Bill Belichick, the head oh, coach yeah, yeah. of the New <laughs> Patriots, said in his post uh, uh, Super Bowl win news conference. And they asked him, well, you know, uh, so what's next? You know, or they asked him something. I don't remember what the actual question was. And he's like, yeah, this was great. You know, we, uh, we everyone celebrated. That's fantastic. But we're five weeks behind oh, on next season. <laughs> so, you know, we got to get to work. We're five weeks behind. Because, you know, some teams that don't make the postseason don't they have, have those five weeks. Off. Right. Yeah. And we're they're already preparing for the, dra the yeah. draft. And the, so he's like, we're five weeks behind everybody else. Yeah. So, but that's the reason he's won so many Super yeah. Bowls and done what he's done. It's really true. He doesn't look back and go, oh, wow, I won, you know, I don't know, four Super Bowls, five Super Bowls, whatever it is. Right. No, he's like, how do I get the next one? Yeah. So. Keeping your eye on the ball, you yeah, know, it's, it, I, so. it, I think being a creative person, like all of us are, it's, you also have to let yourself have that, you know. You would think. Trip to wherever you go to right. sit and relax for three days. Because sometimes I find when I get out of LA, that's when I have my best ideas. Sure. So you do yeah. have to take a little downtime, which I'm not really that good at, but you also can't linger in that space. You have to keep working, right. obviously. Yeah. Time, is, time is running out, Kevin. Yeah. <laughs> it is. Um, on that note, um, thank you for coming on the show, it's Allie. such a pleasure. Yeah, thank you for having me on. Um, really be sure to follow Allie on Twitter. It's A. Laventhal. Um, just the letter A. Yeah. Laventhal. Uh, we, again, we'll have links on the site. Um, check out scriptanatomy.com. Yeah. And if you have questions about the craft or business of writing, you can send us an email to ask at scriptsandscribes.com or send us a tweet to at scriptscribes. There's no and in the middle there, just at scriptscribes. And thank you all for listening. Thanks, guys.